Welcome to Fight Back Radio, the Marxist voice of labor and youth in Canada, and the best source for a revolutionary analysis of current events, perspectives, and theory. While today, Alberta is known as a bastion of right-wing ideology, this was not always the case. Western Canada actually has deep socialist and revolutionary traditions. In this talk, Comrade Alvaro explores part of this history as he discusses the One Big Union. So when people talk about Alberta, uh, they tend to think of it as this bastion for the right wing. I mean, I can kind of understand it. Uh, decades of conservative leadership is going to leave a mark on a province. But in the early 1900s, Alberta and Western Canada was quite different. In fact, it was quite revolutionary. So in the East, the labor movement at the time was dominated by the Trades and Labor Congress of Canada, uh, the TLC. The TLC was intimately linked with the American Federation of Labor, the AFL. Now, both organizations were a loose federation of mostly skilled unions. Um, they defended craft unionism, were against the hiring of, and organizing of immigrant labor. They were against direct political action. Um, they believed their role was to advance the workers' cause under capitalism through higher wages, shorter hours, and better working conditions, when in direct negotiations with employers. And we completely ignore the struggles of unskilled and semi-skilled workers, uh, particularly those in mass industries. So the West really had no use for craft unionism for a few reasons, right? Uh, the labor movement in the East was older and more and had been established for a while. In the West, the labor movement was much newer, much more primitive. Also, the main industries in the West were based around resource extraction, things like lumber, coal, uh, hard rock mining. Um, the workers in the West were organically, uh, in the West organically tended to organize themselves into industrial unions. However, within the major cities of Western Canada, craft unionism did begin to creep its way in. Now, I think it's worth giving a brief explanation of the differences between craft and industrial unions. I mean, I think uh, the differences are kind of lost today since, I mean, who really is organized into a union anymore, right? Um, so just as an example, you can kind of think of it as a, like an auto plant, right? Now, within an auto plant, there might be many different types of workers. You know, you have your engineers, I don't know, welders, electricians, technicians, even janitors, right? Now, an industrial union would seek to organize all the workers at the plant into one union. The way, that way, if there is some kind of dispute, all the workers together can shut down the plant by going on strike. A craft union, however, would try to organize all the different types of workers into their own respective unions. So all the engineers would be in one union, the technicians would be in their own unions, uh, the janitors would also be in their own unions, etc. Right? So if there's a dispute at a plant, it's a lot harder to shut it down. So maybe the technicians can go on strike. But then the other unions have to decide for themselves if they also want to go along with it, right? So I think you can see that industrial unions are much more effective and much more advanced form of workers' organization. Right. So at this time as well, Western Canada was steeped in the ideas of syndicalism and socialism, um, particularly thanks to the British, actually. So the biggest immigrant group uh, to Western Canada were the British. And they brought with them the labor traditions that they had learned back home. Um, by the time these British workers made it to Western Canada, they would arrive with years of organizing experience with them in Britain. Um, it's no coincidence at all that uh, the leadership positions of working class organizations in Western Canada uh, were held by Brits. And that's not an exaggeration either, right? Uh, when Northwest Mounted Police arrested the leading figures of the Winnipeg General Strike, all but one of them was British born. George Armstrong was the only Canadian born organizer. Now, 
And it wasn't only a matter of bringing over their traditions from Britain. Uh, these workers also closely followed the developments of the British labor movement. All the important labor newspapers in Western Canada would carry socialist and trade union news from Britain. Um, the writings of James Connolly were also really well known. And even speaking tours for well-known socialist figures from Britain, such as Tom Mann and Keir Hardy, were held. And now, while these organizations were all led by the Brits, most of these labor organizations in and of themselves were offshoots of American organizations. Now, the, cl the close proximity of the U.S. to Canada also helped influence Western Canadian workers towards syndicalism and socialism. It was quite normal for American workers to work their way through Canada, um, particularly British Columbia, and they would tell their stories of organizing in the Western U.S. Um, and for work Canadian workers, the struggles of Western American workers against the conservative craft unions of the East were the stuff of legends, right? So, for example, um, one of these... Uh, one of these Western unions, uh, the Western Federation of Miners, uh, that developed in the Western U.S., it was said of them that they were more dependent on the Winchester than the boycott or the strike. Um, if you don't know what a Winchester is, it's a type of gun. Um, so yeah, so they're more dependent on their Winchesters than they were on the boycott or on the strike. This was because when workers tried to organize, they were often met with private armies who only answered to their bosses. Um, and faced with a choice of either calling off their work action or shooting back, they often chose to shoot back. And now the... The, radical, the labor radicals in the Western U.S. were staunch defenders of syndicalism and socialism. One of the best examples of American syndicalism was the rise of the, the Industrial Workers of the World, the IWW. The IWW rejected all political actions as a sham and attacked the collaborationist policies of the EFL. They advocated for the establishment of, the one, of one big union for all workers organized into industrial departments. They fought to build the structure of a new society within the shell of the old. And the IWW... W.W. had a large impact on Western Canada, uh, but by the First World War, their influence had already began to decline, but they did leave their mark. So in Western Canada, the ideas of Marxism, socialism, syndicalism were incredibly popular. It wouldn't be strange at all to see hundreds of people at labor meetings, even in small towns like Medicine Hat. Um, for entertainment, workers would often go to their labor halls or trade meetings to hear their favorite speakers speak. Um, the best speakers would travel around giving lectures on various socialist topics, and some of them would even become like local minor celebrities. It was also quite normal to see socialists selling their papers on street corners or standing on soapboxes preaching the benefits of socialism. And socialists would have various schemes to make sure workers would listen to their ideas. Um, one of my personal favorites uh, involved a scheme where a, one of these socialists would go into a crowded area and begin playing a, uh, a comb with the tissue paper, you know, the burn, burn, burn kind of thing. Once they had enough people's attention, uh, they would start selling these combs to them, um, claiming that these combs couldn't be broken, right? Now, once, once his comrade had sold a few combs, um, he'd stop and he'd say, you guys are a bunch of suckers. These combs aren't, aren't breakable. There's no such thing as an unbreakable comb. But what I've done to you, I haven't robbed you. Um, this, what I've done to you is nothing compared to the way you're being robbed as workers. You're robbed by your bosses at the point of production. And this would go into a big speech on Marxist economics, right? So this was the general atmosphere of Western Canada. Now, it's not enough for the working class to struggle in the economic sphere. The working class also needs to struggle in the political sphere. So, and from all this, a political party did emerge, uh, the Socialist Party of Canada. Uh, sorry. Yeah, and political parties emerged from the material conditions present at the time of their creation. And as I've mentioned, Western Canada was awash with syndicalist ideas. Whereas syndicalism eschews political action, 
The Socialist Party took the opposite path and rejected all economic struggle because they only cared about revolution. Uh, they were so revolutionary, in fact, they refused to join the Second International because the reformist British Labour Party was a part of it. They were openly critical of the trade union movement. They argued that conflicts between employers and workers were not part of the class struggle at all. They were only commodity struggles. They were merely disputes over the division of wealth in capitalist society. Therefore, it should hold no interest to socialists. Uh, despite the sectarian attitude, the, SD, the SPD, uh, sorry, uh, the, the SPC, Socialist Party of Canada, was quite popular in Western Canada. Um, and they managed to win various legislative positions in British Columbia, Alberta, and Manitoba. Also, oddly enough, despite the party's rejection of trade union movement, many of their most prominent members were trade union activists themselves. So this was what Western Canada was like right up until the First World War. Uh, the Great War brought about a huge change in the working class, particularly one event, right? The greatest event in human history, the Russian Revolution. Now, for the first time in history, the working class won power and managed to hold on to it. Um, and this did send shockwaves across the world and inspired countless working class organizations. They now had a concrete example that the working class could win. Unfortunately, though, workers around the world only saw the end product of the Russian Revolution. They didn't see the patient party building Lenin and the Bolsheviks went through in order to be able to win power. The workers didn't see the years of polemical debates with other Marxists that sharpened their ideological sword, uh, the, the ideological sword of, Bolshevis, of the Bolsheviks. The workers didn't see the experience they gained and the lessons learned through the revolutions of 1905. They didn't see the period of underground work following the severe reaction following 1905. Um, they didn't see the, the work of the Bolsheviks did after the February Revolution to help consolidate their win um, and led them to victory at the October Revolution. And, and all these things led to the formation of a disciplined Marxist party capable of winning power. And many workers across the world wanted to win power and saw it was possible, but they didn't see the need to build a Bolshevik party that could lead the working class into power. And Canada was no exception. Following the victory of the Russian Revolution, a whole new wave of labor action began. So much so that uh, one of the newspapers in the West actually published an article stating revolution in Russia, revolution in Austria, revolution in Bulgaria, revolution in the benighted country where we were told the tame slaves of the Kaiser would never revolt. Which country will be next? How far will the revolution spread? Can it be avoided in Canada? So the Russian Revolution really was the catalyst for the formation of the one big union. Um, but not even the one big union came about overnight. Now, at the Convention of the Trades and Labor Congress held in Quebec City in September of 1918, uh, the radicalism of the West and the AFL-style unionism of the Eastern labor leaders came to a head. At this meeting, the Western labor leaders tried to pass motions condemning the leadership of the TLC, uh, tried to pass motions restructuring the TLC into industrial union, um, and, support, and tried to pass a motion supporting the Russian workers by calling for a strike if the Allied forces didn't leave Russia. Uh, none of these revolutions, oh, sorry, none of these resolutions passed, mostly because the Western Union leaders were outnumbered. Out of over 400 delegates, only, 50, only 45 were from the West. The Western labor leaders never wanted to be defeated like that again. So that, they would, so that that wouldn't happen, the labor leaders decided they would have a caucus before next year's meeting so they could discuss strategy and figure out how they, they could strengthen their voices within the TLC. Um, and this caucus actually ended up being incredibly difficult to organize, mostly because of the fear that it would turn into a caucus for secession from the TLC. 
Uh, and these fears were justified. The majority of the trade union leaders were members of the Socialist Party of Canada, and they saw the caucus as a chance to get from under the reactionary East and take control of the Western labor movement. So from March 13th to 15th, uh, 1919, the Western Trade Conference finally happened in Calgary. And just as they planned, the SPCers, the Socialist Party of Canada members, managed to dominate the conference. And amongst other motions, they managed to pass a motion for secession. Now, we should be clear this, that this wasn't the founding of the one big union, but it would be from this conference that the idea, the idea of the one big union gained momentum in Western Canada. Unfortunately, the SPC leadership of the one big union were severely confused in its ideas. They did look to the Soviet Union for inspiration, but they had no real understanding of what the Bolsheviks were doing and what world trade unions were playing within Soviet Russia. Um, they were under the impression that it was the Soviets that were administering society and mixed up the Soviet system with their own syndicalist notions of administration through trade unions. And this doesn't answer the question of political organizations. Uh, the SPCers also held a fetish for general strikes. Um, for them, a general strike was a panacea. Um, any disputes with the bosses were to be answered by general strikes. Now, in theory, yes, a general strike uh, will win concessions from the bosses, uh, but a general strike can't be called on with a snap of, of the fingers, right? Um, general strikes aren't a game to be played with, as calling for a general strike arbitrarily and failing um, and falling in defeat can push the labor movement back, right? And, and for our purposes, I guess, the, the important thing to remember is this conference resolved to have a referendum of West Canadian workers to see if they wish to break with the TLC and help to uh, found the one big union. And this is kind of the problem with sectarianism, right? In an attempt to bypass the leadership of reactionary unions, they form their own smaller unions. And this only helps the reactionary unions or the reformist unions as it takes away a layer of the most radical workers out of that union and abandons the rest of the working class. In the same way that sectarians uh, try to pass the reformist trade union, uh, bypass the reformist trade unions, they also hope to solve the question of political leadership of the proletariat by using these unions as a substitute for the political party. Um, Trotsky said this about this kind of formations, right? And I quote: "Sectarian attempts to build or preserve small revolutionary unions as a second edition of the party." signify in actuality the renouncing of the struggle for leadership of the working class. It is necessary to establish this firm rule. Self-isolation of the capitulationist variety from mass trade unions is tantamount to a betrayal of the revolution. Now, however, just like uh, stopped watch is right twice a day, uh, sectarians can also tap into the mood of the masses. And in this case, the OBU did tap into the anti-craft unionism and sing ridiculous ideas of Western Canada. And this won them a lot of support from the workers. And, and despite the enthusiasm and support for the One Big Union, the local trade councils that were tied to the TLC went, to, went on to work to secure their own membership. And Alex Ross of the Calgary Trade Council made a good point. Um, he said this about uh, the One Big Union. There are only 35,000 union members in Western Canada who would, if they followed the One Big Union, be separating themselves from everyone else. And they have the audacity to call it the One Big Union. I call it a dinky little union when we compare it to the total number of workers in the North American continent. I think this really does show the correct instincts of the trade councils. 
Um, the main question for them really rested on should we split from the TLC or not? Uh, and they were on the no side. And however, despite the fact that the, the, the publications of the one big unions would call these uh, trade council members uh, reactionaries, um, they were all still staunch labor militants. They were all opposed to craft unionism. Uh, they were against the conservatism of the TLC and also expressed their solidarity with the Russian workers. And for the average worker, other than staying with the TLC, there was not much different between the OBU and the trade councils. Um, the One Big Union didn't help itself much either. They absolutely refused to talk about politics or strategy or what organizational strategy they should have. So Now, imagine going up to a worker who might, act might actually be interested in the organization and not being able to answer the simple question of, well, what do you stand for? What do you believe in? You know, answering, oh, I don't know. We'll find out later. We'll figure it out later. I mean, you can't really win people over with th that kind of uh, policy. Now, the organization efforts of the One Big Union ended up being stalled by a very important event in Canadian history, the Winnipeg General Strike. Now, I don't really have time to go into the events of the Winnipeg General Strike, but a few things should be noted. The One Big Union did not call or organize the strike as they didn't really formally exist yet, right? The conditions for the general strike had been brewing for months beforehand. However, the leaders of what would become the One Big Union did play a leading role in the strikes. And these strikes also set off sympathy strikes all over Western Canada, particularly in Alberta. Every single town in Alberta had a sympathy strike from Medicine Hat, Drumheller, Red Deer, Lethbridge, Calgary, and Edmonton. Any major, not even any major city, any little city with any kind of, any small amount of workers had a general strike. Um, and to this day, in many places like Calgary and Vancouver, for example, the strike set records that still stand to this day for the amount of total working days lost. And so this was a, a major revolutionary moment for the Western Canadian labor movement. Um, I mentioned earlier the correct instincts of the trade councils. And it's worth noting that despite the difference and animosity between the OBU sympathizers and the trade council sympathizers, they never broke rank. Um, in fact, in Edmonton, the trade council member leadership, sorry, had managed to expel the one big union sympathizers from their ranks. However, when the general strike broke out in Winnipeg, and it was decided that there would be a sympathy strike in Edmonton, um, the one big union sympathizers were allowed back in. And one of the main organizers for the one big union in Edmonton became the chair of the strike committee. So in the midst of the strike wave, the one big union held its referendum. Uh, many of the votes uh, casted couldn't actually be counted because of the strikes. Um, regardless, the OPU anticipated a win and called the founding meeting for June 4th in Calgary. Sorry about that. Uh, June 4th in Calgary. The difference between the June meeting and the earlier Western Canadian Labor Conference was palatable. Uh, the Western Canadian Labor Conference had left the delegates feeling inspired and enthused about upcoming events. This meeting did not. Right? This founding meeting was missing all the delegates from Manitoba, as a general strike was still going on there. And the delegates who did show up were coming from cities whose strikes were either lost or were in the process of losing. In total, only 25 demoralized candidate, candidate, uh, delegates uh, managed to attend. 
And regardless of this, the founding Congress was held. Now, the preamble of the Constitution that, that it produced announced the inevitab inevitability of the class struggle and called upon workers to prepare themselves for the day when production for profit would be replaced uh, by production for use. However, uh, as uh, the historian David G. Berkison points out, the, docu the Congress document was remarkable for its lack of clarity and posed more questions than it answered. Um, despite the fact that it finally had a, a constitution, um, the OBU still did not know what it wanted to be. It didn't know how it would organize itself. Uh, the Socialist Party of Canada members in the One Big Union also made it a point to keep the One Big Union out of politics as that was the sphere of the Socialist Party. And so, and I think the general conception that they had of the One Big Union was that it would recruit as many people as possible, hold a general strike, and win power that way. And so for the rest of the year, the One Big Union would go about recruiting and trying to win people over to their organization. But by the mid-1920s, just a year later, the party would enter into its terminal decline. So three main events led to its downfall, right? Uh, the first was the economic depression that began in Canada in 1920. Uh, this made it hard for many of the OBU members to actually pay their union fees. Um, a lot of unemployment came and they actually lost a lot of their membership that way. So this caused the one beginning to fall into financial trouble. Um, also, for sectarians, because they are disconnected from the masses, these organizations tend to lose their sense of proportions. Uh, these organizations become rife with inter-organizational squabbles and maneuverings, um, and the OBU was no exception to this. So at the time, Midgley was the secretary of uh, the One Big Union, and he maneuvered around and ultimately managed to expel Ernest Wench. Um, this was a terrible mistake. So Wench was the natural leader of the lumber workers uh, within the One Big Union. He himself was a lumber worker and had struggled with the workers there for years. And Wench actually had recently managed to win over a large number of lumber workers to the One Big Union. Um, and this actually was one of the most successful areas of work for the One Big Union. Um, and in fact, the lumber workers accounted for over a third of the finances of the One Big Union. But Midgley, the chair of the One Big Union at the time, became scared that Wench would replace him as secretary. So he maneuvered and had Wench expelled. Now, naturally, uh, the lumber workers followed Wench out of the One Big Union. Um, now, this further isolated the One Big Union and even further hurt their finances. Again, the lumber workers made up a third of their finances, um, and now they were suddenly gone. I think the last blow uh, for the One Big Union would actually be the formation of the Communist Party of Canada uh, and the Profintern. In 1920, at the Second Congress of the Comintern, uh, the Comintern published its 21 conditions of admission into the Communist International. Uh, this would lead to the formation of the Communist Party of Canada. The Communist Party of Canada really solved a lot of the confusion that the Socialist Party of Canada and the One Big Union had. Uh, within the Communist Party, the separation of the economic work and the political work dissolved, um, and it was, as the Communist Party was a much more advanced form of, of organization. So many of the SPCers in the One Big Union left and joined up with the Communist Party. Now, a few more would have to wait for the Profintern. 
Now, the Profintern, or the Red International Labor Unions, was another international body established by the Communist International that aimed to coordinate the communist activities within the trade unions. It was a way for the communists to offer a common front with the syndicalists. For example, the IWW in the States, the French syndicalists, they had all broken or sorry, they had all broken with the broader labor organizations in their countries. Uh, and the Profintern really pushed from the burrowing from within tactic to bring those radical workers into the broader labor organizations so they, they could win over, they could win these organizations to more radical positions and not leave the workers within these organizations to the mercies of the reformist leadership. Um, and the OBU actually managed to send a delegate to the founding Congress of the Profintern, uh, Jack Knight. He, uh, he became immediately convinced of this tactic of burrowing from within and on his return to Canada, urged the OBU to join the Profintern. However, by joining the Profintern, it would mean the disbanding of the One Big Union. So a section of the membership decided to stay, while the rest also joined with the Profintern uh, and the Communist Party. So by this point, uh, by the end of 1921, uh, the OBU was basically a shell. Uh, they did, however, manage to find a way to solve their financial crisis, a cr quite creative way, actually. So through their paper, through their party, uh, their party paper, they began to offer coupons to their readers so that they could use to bet on baseball. You know, if they wanted to make more than one bet, they would have to buy another paper. Um, this gambling scheme actually became really popular in Winnipeg. It was known that even the most reactionary bosses in Winnipeg were buying the papers of the one big union so that they could gamble. However, we should note that even if a union has good finances, it doesn't really matter if it doesn't have members to do anything, right? Um, it's, it's, you know, finances aren't enough. It actually needs bodies. So the OBU would survive uh, for about 30 years more or so. And in that time, its only real win was winning over transit workers in Winnipeg. Now, the isolation the OBU faced finally forced it to reject its sectarian attitude and would eventually join and dissolve into the Canadian Labour Congress by 1951. Um, this finally brought about the end of the OBU. So ultimately, I think the OBU really confirmed Lenin's ideas on ultra-leftism. Um, by breaking out of... Uh, sorry, by breaking out of your union form a perfect revolutionary one would end up isolating you and render you a small and significant sect. But I think it's worth mentioning the OBU and the SPCers were genuine revolutionaries. Um, they did help lead a strike wave that affected all of Western Canada. The problem was that they had confused ideas. They didn't understand the need to build a genuine revolutionary party. And who really could blame them, right? I mean... Before the Russian Revolution, it was really only Lenin who truly understood this. But once the genuine revolutionary party did form in Canada, the best layers of the Socialist Party of Canada and the One Big Union went and joined them. Um, so I'm going to leave it there and uh, hope to have a good discussion. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Fight Back Radio. Fight Back is a revolutionary organization fighting for the socialist transformation of society. We are the Canadian section of the international Marxist tendency. 
we actively seek to educate workers and youth in the genuine ideas of Marxism in order to fight back against capitalist attacks and austerity and bring an end to capitalism. However, we won't be able to do this on our own. So if you agree with us, get involved. We can be found online at marxist.ca, on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok at Canada Marxists, on Instagram at Socialist Fightback, and on YouTube as Fightback La Riposte. For international news and analysis, check out In Defense of Marxism at marxist.com. The music in this episode was General Strike by Soul Jazz Orchestra. They can be found at souljazzorchestra.com.